If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10 this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you always welcome us back, that you allow us to return to you, that you're the the father that loves the prodigal. And would you search us tonight to, to see where we've drifted, to see where we've wandered, that we could come back to you. God, we pray that you would do great work in our hearts and lives. Do lift up the moms to you this weekend. Pray you would protect them from the voice of the enemy, that you would affirm them. We thank you for their love, for their sacrifice, and would you bless all of the the moms this weekend. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, stanzas two and three really stand out to me this evening. It says, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am consecrated to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Teach me, Lord, some rapturous measure. Meet for me thy grace to prove while I sing the countless treasure of my God's unchanging love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take it and seal it with thy spirit from above. Rescue thus from sin and danger, pursued by the Savior's blood, May I walk on earth as a stranger, as son and heir of God. Have you found that your heart's prone to wander? Isn't that a scary thing? Our heart loves the Lord, but our heart is also deceitfully wicked. Selfishness is strong. It's easy for us to get off track. It's easy to to drift. There's so many times in our walk with the Lord where God calls us back to him. He calls us out of that place of wandering out of that place of drifting, to return to our first love with the Lord. The children of Israel are going through a process of spiritual renewal. There's been the physical transformation of the wall, but now God is changing their lives. They've rediscovered the word of God. They're broken over their sin. At the end of chapter 9, they sealed a covenant. They made a commitment to return to the Lord. What had gotten them into bondage was their idolatry. Generations of walking in idolatry and God warning them, but them not heeding the voice of the prophets and even killing the prophets. And so ultimately they had to go into captivity. But now they're back in the promised land. The temple is rebuilt. The wall is restored around the city and they're rededicating themselves uh, to the Lord to the point where they, they sign this covenant, they sign this commitment, they make a stand and say, I wanna declare before God and others that I'm rededicating, I'm recommitting my life uh, to the Lord. And thankfully, God allows recommitment, doesn't he? Does God ever turn the prodigal away and say, you know, it's just one too many times. I'm tired of you recommitting, I'm tired of you rededicating yourself. Thankfully, the Lord allows us to surrender ourselves afresh to him. In Romans chapter 12, it tells us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice on God's altar based upon his his mercy. The problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. It's genuine in our lives. 
We genuinely surrender to the Lord, but yet we can easily crawl off the altar and return to selfishness. So may the Holy Spirit reveal areas of our lives tonight where we need to recommit to him. We need to surrender afresh uh, to him. Chapter 10, verse 1. Just to warn you, we are going to do three chapters, so hope you got your coffee before you came this evening. Now those who placed their seal on the document were. This is the covenant. This is the, the commitment that they're making to God to return to the Lord. And the names of those that signed this document. Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. In verse 2 to verse 8, it lists 24 priests. These were the priests. The priests also signed their name to this commitment to the Lord. In verse 9 through verse 11, we have 17 Levites that commit to follow the Lord and rededicate themselves to the Lord. And then from verse 14 to verse 27, there's 44 different leaders that write their name on this. And and God records their names. For all of eternity, he puts this down for us. Because it means something to the Lord. God is honoring their commitment unto the Lord. In verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephilim, and all of those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles. So we see the unification of the brethren, the unification of the Israelites and saying, we're choosing to follow the Lord. It's not just Nehemiah, it's not just Ezra, it's not just the, the priests and the leaders, but all of the people gathered together. This is a true move of God, where they're saying, we are committing ourselves to the Lord. We're making this public declaration that we're going to serve God, the one true living God. And in that, there's unity. We're looking for unity, aren't we? But oftentimes, we're looking for unity in all of the wrong places. What can really unify our marriages? What can unify our families? What can unify Rocky Mountain Calvary? What can unify culture? Is when we're sold out to Jesus, when we're surrendered to him, when we say, I want to serve the Lord. When that's clear in our lives, when that becomes the priority of our lives, then relationships get unified. But if my relationship's not right with the Lord, I'm going to struggle with relationships with people. But when that relationship comes in line with the Lord, and then that takes place in a a marriage where you have two people that have their eyes on the Lord instead of on each other, there's the overflow that begins to happen, living water being poured into their hearts that then splashes over to your spouse, splashes over to, to your kids. Joshua put it this way, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And they're unified in that mission, that unified in saying this is our purpose, is we want to serve God. So tremendous unity comes as this move of God happens and takes place. Continuing in verse 29, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all of the commandments of the Lord our God, and his ordinances and his statutes. 
So unity, but also dedication to the word. This goes to Deuteronomy chapter 28, under the old covenant where God said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And they're acknowledging if we disobey, we're going to be cursed. And we're choosing to obey. The commitment is sincere here. The problem is their sinful flesh and our sinful flesh as well. Sneak peek to next week, chapter 13. This commitment doesn't last very long. One more chapter and we see them walking in rebellion to God. Well, what happened to this amazing commitment to God's word, this, this rededication to, to the Lord? What happens to us so oftentimes? That commitment to God is sincere, but then we get off track and we fall into sin. The old covenant shows us the need of the new covenant. This is law written on stones, but it's not law written upon the hearts. The nation of Israel in this brutal cycle of returning to the Lord and disobeying, returning to the Lord and disobeying, ultimately it points out they need a savior. The law couldn't change their hearts. And Jesus died for our sin to win over our hearts so that when we surrender to him, it's in the new covenant of his grace. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do this on our, our, on our own. A rules, law-based relationship with God does not result in transformation, but knowing the love of God, the mercy of God, being empowered by the Spirit of God, that results in, in real change in our lives. In verse 30, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares of any grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy it from them on the Sabbath or any holy day, and we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt, separation from the world. That we will not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land and take their daughters. And the whole reason for this is these pagan nations that are around them didn't know the one true living God. And how many times have we seen this? That there's a dating relationship, there's a romantic relationship, there, there's a marriage with a believer and an unbeliever, and over time, that unbeliever sways the heart of the believer. So they realize this and say, we want to be separated unto the Lord. On the Sabbath day, we're not going to do business unto the Lord. Businesses today that take a Sabbath stand out, don't they? Because they don't follow the seven days a week. They say, we're going to choose to close one day a week and we're going to rest. And that's what they're declaring here is we're going to be separated from the world. In John 17, Jesus encourages us in the same thing. He says, and I've given them your word, speaking to the disciples, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. God wants us to be in the world. We had a conference here at the church last night and this morning called Such a Time as This, looking at the times that we're living in and how we should respond. One of the ways that we need to respond in these dark spiritual times is be in the lives of unbelievers. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. 
If our idea of the Christian life is, well, I'm just going to always hang out with Christians because I need to be separated from the world, we've missed it. God wants us to be spending time with unbelievers. That's our mission. That's, that's the mission of Christ. But as we spend time with unbelievers, that our life is separated unto God. When Jesus was the friend of sinners, do you think that he had to sin with them to build a bridge? He was able to continue in righteousness, but absolutely love that sinner and be that friend of a sinner. What a great compliment that was given to Jesus that came in the way of a complaint saying, why is Jesus hanging out with those sinners? Why does he receive sinners unto himself? Would that ever be said of us? Would you ever turn the heads of your church friends because you're hanging out with someone who's a sinner and they're like, I don't know about that. That would be a tremendous compliment. I think we're far from that, aren't we? We're, we're far from that place of, of really putting ourselves in someone's life who would then maybe tarnish our reputation, God forbid, right? So we're in this world, we're desiring to be salt and light, but yet we're also separated. And that's what we see in this principle where we're not marching to the same drum as the world. And God wants us to, to be separate to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and not be conformed to this world's mold. And the world may be pressing in on us in ways that we don't even realize, that's causing us to drift from the Lord, that, that moves us to a place of, of rededication unto him. This then flows right into their worship, their giving. In verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel, for the service of the house of God. They're saying we're going to make sure that we're giving so that the temple can be taken care of. This is their way of showing that they want worship to have the priority of their life. For the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of Sabbaths, the new moons, and set feasts for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God, we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the peoples for bringing wood offering to the house of our God. According to our Father's house, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it's written in the law. So they're wanting to obey God's word. In all that God had prescribed to them, in sacrifices, in the feasts, and we made ordinances to bring first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of our trees year by year to the house of the Lord. So bringing that first fruit to the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it's written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough. That sounds pretty good. So you're baking and you've got your dough. You're like, this is the first fruits of, of my dough. Our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. For the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. 
and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of grain, of the new wine, the oil, to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And here's the key phrase. And we will not neglect the house of our God. We're not gonna neglect worship. In this rededication, it's a determination to worship. And it's seen in their giving, in their financial giving. They realize there's financial giving that takes place so the temple can operate, so the Levites can be provided for and the sacrifices to take place. God calls us to be a cheerful giver out of worship. Now, he doesn't need our money. He's really not after our money. I hope you know that. God's not broke. He's after our hearts. Your heart follows your treasure. Where you put your treasure, your heart will naturally follow. So as we give to his kingdom, as we give to his work, then our heart is going to get invested in his work. I would say a month or so ago, I was really struggling making out my tithe check. We're in the habit of tithing and seeing God bless in in the midst of that. And I I just found myself not in a place of being a cheerful giver. And the first would come and I'd tithe and then the 15th would come and I'd wait four or five days. I'm feeling that conviction from the Holy Spirit. Man, I, I I need to give. To the point where I had a conversation with Amber and I said, I need some accountability in this. I'm struggling with doing this and I know that I need you to hold me accountable because I'm just not in a place where I'm really feeling like giving, right? Well, that is hard to say out loud, isn't it? It's like, now I got your guys' attention. But it rang the warning bells in my heart. What's going on in my heart? This is is showing something about my heart. I'm, I'm having a hard time letting this go, letting this money go and give it unto to the Lord. So I had to do business with the Lord and work that out with the Lord and try to get my motivation right in giving. Because God, he calls us to be a cheerful giver. You remember those times in your relationship with the Lord where giving wasn't an obligation, but it was a joy. It's like, God, you've been so gracious to me. You've been so, so good to me. And this is a way that I get to respond to you in worship unto the Lord. But our giving or the lack thereof or our motivation in giving in all different areas, in time, in talents, and in resources, it, it reveals what's going on in our hearts. We continue on into chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwell at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who were willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. The problem was now getting people to live in Jerusalem. The temple's built, the wall is rebuilt, but people aren't living in Jerusalem. Jews aren't living in Jerusalem. So there's a draft where if you were one that was chosen in the lottery, you had to come live in Jerusalem, one out of every 10. 
But then there was also those who willingly came and lived in Jerusalem. So the rest of the chapter breaks itself up uh, this way. In verse 4, you see children of Judah that are listed. In verse 7, you see the sons of Benjamin. This is primarily focusing on southern Israel, which is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So you have the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin. And in verse 10, the Levites that were willing to live in Jerusalem. Verse 15, or verse 10, the priests. Verse 15, the Levites. Verse 19, the gatekeepers. Verse 22, the overseers. And then in verse 25, it's those dwelling outside of Jerusalem and the villages. And they're not listed by name. God records the names of those who are willing to live in the holy city. And once again, God doesn't waste words, right? He could have summarized just like I did. But instead, he wrote down their names. He wrote down the names of those that committed in this covenant. He wrote down the names of those that were willing to live in Jerusalem. And he sees and he takes note. God's paying a lot more attention than we think he is. And he doesn't miss your labor of love. He doesn't miss your, your sacrifice unto him. And those families, those individuals that say, we realize that Jerusalem is special because God's temple is here. And this is where he's chosen to put his presence. And when we choose to serve God, when we choose to serve one another, the temple of the Holy Spirit, God sees and he takes note. verse 27 of chapter 12. The first 26 verses of chapter 12, the priests and the Levites that came up from Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple are listed, and the priests and the Levites during the reign of Darius the Persian. So God is, is taking note of those priests and those Levites who are willing to serve, and that brings us to verse 27. I'm really cruising here tonight. Right? Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So now we get to this culmination of the dedication of the wall. It's finished, but they want to thank the Lord for God allowing this to come together. They sought out the Levites in all of their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. This is quite the party. This is the party of thanksgiving. One of the things I think that we're not very good at as a culture, and the American church holds true to this, is celebrating, rejoicing. It is healthy for us to stop and pause and go, this is a big moment in my life. And God has done a work He's helped me to overcome sin. He's provided for us. He's seen me through a season of discouragement, and it's time to strike up the band. It's time to have a barbecue. It's time to make some loud noises unto the Lord. Our, our worship, and appropriately so, many times as the American church, is much more, more somber. Every once in a while, we'll do one of these. And let's be honest, it feels weird. It's like, what am, what am I doing, right? 
But you get excited about a sports team and you're like, woo, yeah, right? And then we come in to give thanksgiving to the Lord and it's, it's pretty quiet. And I fault myself at this too, right? I'm a lot better at being serious than joyful celebration. You know, being somber comes a lot easier for me than joyful celebration. But this is time to rejoice. Is there something that you need to celebrate in your life that God has done? where you get family and friends together and say, we're just getting together for the sole purpose of thanking the Lord for what he's done. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nito-Fethites, and from the house of Gilead, and from the fields of Geba. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem, then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So they all get together. The singers are coming together and they purify themselves simply for the purpose of celebration, simply for the purpose of thanking the Lord. So I brought the elders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right on the wall toward the refuse gate. Bummer to be in that choir, they had to go by the poop gate. That's, that's what the refuse gate is. That's the New King James polite way of, let's just call it poop gate, right? So one choir gets sent to the refuse gate and then the other goes the other way. So picture this, this wall is built and one's going around one side and one's going around the other and they're thanking God, they're singing praises to God as they go. After them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. So behind the, the choir were the leaders. And then in verse 35, and some of the priests with trumpets. So you've also got trumpets that are going along with the choir, which would be ram's horns. That's what was their trumpets that they uh, would use. Continuing into verse 36 with musical instruments, of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. Ezra, a contemporary of Nehemiah, the scribe, instrumental, also in the rebuilding of the temple. And they've got instruments that were created by David. I want you to ponder that for just a moment. Because David was a, a tremendous warrior. When he killed Goliath as a young man, he cut his head off. And he brings his head into the camp of, of Israel. He couldn't rebuild the temple because there was so much blood on his hands. He, he was such a warrior, but he was also a worshiper. And oftentimes we don't think of those two going together. We think, oh man, I, I'm really tough and really strong, but I doubt there's been too many people in human history that have worshiped like David to the point where he made up new instruments. He was such a good musician that he was able to, to create new instruments. What was his first in with Saul? It wasn't him being a warrior necessarily, it was him being a worshiper, him playing the harp but before Saul. So we're never too tough to worship. And I suggest to you that if we will be a worshiper, it'll make us a great warrior. But it's hard to be a great warrior for God if we're not a, a worshiper. So these instruments are ascribed to David. In verse 37, by the fountain gate in front of them, they went up to the stairs of the city of David, and on the stairway of the wall, 
beyond the house of David as far as the water gate eastward. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. And I was behind them with half of the people on the wall going past the tower of ovens. Now that, sound, that smells a lot better than the refuse gate, is the tower of ovens, as far as the broad wall. And the above gate of Ephraim, the old gate above the fish gate, the tower of Hanel, the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped by the gate of the prison. So they're circling around the city, these two choirs. This would be kind of fun tonight if we broke up into two Thanksgiving choirs, you guys on the right, you guys on the left, and then we started marching around the church, and then you passed in the middle, right? See who could sing, sing the loudest. Were any of you going to church during a time when responsive singing was really popular, where the, where the worship pastor would sing one thing, and then the church would sing the other, and the, the men would sing one thing, and then the women would sing the other, right? It was kind of fun. In verse 40, so the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half of the rulers with me and the priests. And so they're, they're listed as well, that they're, they're standing in the house of God waiting for these choirs to, to come around. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. So God had put this joy in their heart. The women and the children also rejoiced, so the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. There's this culmination of thanksgiving as they're rededicating themselves to the Lord. The wall is rebuilt, but the people are rebuilt as well, and there's great joy in their hearts and in their lives. To the point where this is heard, great distance off, the joy that is found in Jerusalem, the joy that's found in the house of God. Wouldn't that be a great testimony for us as believers? In the healthiest, most holy sense of the word, what if that's what we were known for on the street that we lived on? In the apartment complex that we lived on. Man, there's a lot of joy in that house. I wonder what they got going. And it's Jesus, right? What if Rocky Mountain Calvary was known for joy? What if people are like, what are they doing walking into that building? They just seem so, so joyful. Why are you so joyful at work with all these Zoom calls? But yet you, you have something that, that we don't have. And that joy can be a tremendous testimony to the reality of, of Christ in our lives. In verse 44, and at the same time, they were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the First fruits in the tithes to gather into them from the fields to the cities of the portions specified by the law for the priests, the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So they're getting the storerooms prepared to take in the offerings. Both singers and gatekeepers kept charge of their God in charge of their purification according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. Singing was so important to God that some of the priests and the Levites, their job was simply to sing. You're, you're the singers, and you make sure that there's continued song that's coming before the Lord. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, 
there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. It's the worship team. (laughs) Aren't you guys thankful for the worship team? But we get to participate with the worship team, don't we? We get to enter into that chorus unto the Lord. In the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave their portions for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. If thanksgiving and worship is in its proper place in our lives, there's probably a good chance we're walking with the Lord. It's probably a better indication that my heart is where it should be if I'm going through my day in this Thanksgiving choir. But the opposite's true. I'm probably drifting from the Lord and my heart's starting to wander if I'm going through my days complaining. It says a lot. There's a lot to it in Scripture of being thankful. In Romans chapter 1, it really describes the unraveling of the soul. And one of the things is they knew God as God, but didn't glorify him. So there was this knowledge of God, and they didn't glorify God, nor were they thankful. So it's this rejecting of the knowledge of God coupled with being unthankful. We really live in an unthankful culture, don't we? And the current environment with COVID and all the craziness that's taken place in our world gives us a lot more fuel for complaining. Like I needed any more fuel. <laughs> I, I, I found plenty of stuff to complain about in 2019, before COVID hit in 2020. So say, Lord, this really does indicate something in my heart similar to, to giving. I want to align my heart with you by choosing to be thankful. So this evening, do you need to rededicate? Do you need to recommit yourself to the Lord? And is it possible that this rededication of surrendering to ourselves afresh to the Lord is something that should happen much more on a regular basis? Because our heart begins to wander, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. God, my heart's starting to wander, so I'm surrendering myself to you. Rededication doesn't necessarily have to be something where we're so far gone, where we've really gotten off track, and sometimes that's the case. But hopefully we can keep short accounts with the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, I'm off track, and I need to rededicate. I need to re-surrender myself to you. And thankfully, God welcomes us back. So let's stand and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to know us, and surrender ourselves afresh uh, to the Lord. Father, as the rain comes down, we ask that you would pour out living water in our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would search us that you would know us, that you would reveal things about our hearts that we're not clearly seeing.
And Father, we say yes to you afresh tonight. We acknowledge that being surrendered to you, being fully surrendered to you, is the best place for us to be. So we put our lives on your altar. We put our hearts on your altar. Our eyes, our ears, our our thoughts, our hands, our feet, our bodies. You're so good to us in your grace and your mercy and the new covenant. And based on your mercy, we surrender afresh to you. Lord, and we acknowledge as we're gonna sing to you that our hearts are prone to wander. Left to ourselves, we're gonna drift. And so, Jesus, would you keep us close to you? Would you put the rubber band of your love around us and when we begin to stray, would you bring us back to you? So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.